Joining our series this morning is Simon McKean AO, former Australian of the Year, investment banking doyen, corporate dealmaker, and noted philanthropist. Throughout the course of an extraordinarily diverse career, Simon has been intricately involved in some of Australia's largest institutions, government bodies, and charities, having built a 40-plus year network of experience and domain expertise across a wide variety of fields, including but not limited to investment banking, capital markets, finance, law, sports, tourism, education, and health. Current positions include as Chancellor of Monash University, Non-Executive Director of National Australia Bank, Senior Independent Director of Rio Tinto Limited, Co-Chair of the Federal Government's Disability Employment Advisory Committee and Consultant to Macquarie Group. Previous positions include as Chairman of CSIRO, Chairman of AMP, Chairman of MIOB, Chairman of Greater South East Melbourne, former President of the Australian Takeovers Panel, Advisory Board Member of PGA Group and Advisory Board Member of GFG Alliance Australia, among a host of other executive and consultancy-based positions. In addition to these positions, Simon has been deeply embedded in a number of not-for-profit companies, including MS Research Australia, World Vision Australia and the Global Poverty Project Australia, to name a few. Today's discussion with Simon will focus predominantly on his 35-year career with Macquarie Group, wherein he rose to become Executive Chairman of the business's Melbourne office, as well as his current board involvements in the banking, mining and university sectors. Simon, pleasure having you on the series. Well done on such a formidable career, and I hope my introduction gave justice to your achievements. I want to open our discussion with the environment in which we're chatting this morning. Take me through your assessment or perspective of the domestic economy and the sort of fiscal shape you think Australia's in. Well, thanks, Rob. Um, great to be with you. And, you know, that question you've just asked is is asked of people every day and we hear it on the newswires and what have you all the time. I guess from my perspective, what really occurred in the first quarter of last year was that we built a big wall around our continent and restricted movement very, very significantly. And at a, at a top line, what that said to me was that, um, you know, we're a very prosperous country. We have an extraordinary middle class and classes above that. And, you know, many of us forget that the aspiration of, you know, going overseas and spending money is not an aspiration that's shared by many other countries. And what that led for a relatively small country like Australia is that um, as the years went by, we ended up spending around about $40 billion sharing wonderful experiences overseas. When that wall went up at the beginning of last year, that prevented us doing that. And so that $40 billion of annual expenditure stayed here. At the same time, the wall actually, of course, prevented economic activity coming in to the country. But and I'll emphasise these are very high-level numbers, but that, that prevented $20 billion of activity coming in. So we had a net positive impact of $20 billion as soon as that wall went up. And in, in many respects, that was a insulating factor to the, to the hardships that we have gone into. It explains, of course, why um, you know, many sectors have not uh, suffered much at all. There's money to spend on where we live. There's money to spend on how we travel with cars. There's money to spend on how we enjoy ourselves, whether it's in the boating industry or, or a new set of golf clubs or whatever. So our domestic economy has been very largely cushioned by something that we all hope is temporary, the big wall, which will be dismantled, obviously, in the coming months of next year. Um, but in many respects, that's the secret to then delving into what sectors have prospered and, and what sectors have done it really, really hard, and let alone the individuals, you know, um, who, are, who are affected by those, those sectors. Reflecting on the past 18 months or so, how would you evaluate the country's performance to the pandemic from both a health and economic perspective? Well, the health journey has been a really fascinating one. I mean, I know I, like so many others, were we're really, really proud of how we worked so well to contain the virus. Obviously, I mean, I'm a Melbourneian like you, and uh, we now, I think, now hold that world record of the most locked down city in the world. But um, I, I think most of us understood that there was a reason for that. You know, there were bad side effects from that, but overall, a relatively low, you know, incident rate of the infection, the death rate, and what have you. 
Um, even though we lost control of it last year, we seem to have lost control of it now with, with Delta. But overall, um, you know, when we compare ourselves in particular to other OECD countries, it's been a good experience. Having said all that, we're in a different space now. You know, Delta is a tiger by the a tail that we can't seem to control here in Victoria. And obviously the race right now is just to get vaccinated as, as comprehensively as possible. And then to, um, you know, discuss as a community that tough question about how exactly do we open up? The, the impact on the economy, well, I guess I touched on it in the, in the previous answer. Honestly, in, in many respects, it depends where you were. <laughs> you know, some sectors have boomed as a result of it. Some haven't. And, um, uh, you know, honestly, the, the big question for me is obviously, you know, getting back into the new COVID normal. It won't be how it was in the past. Um, but, um, you know, at the end of the day, some sectors that have been absolutely ravaged, you hear them every day, tourism, hospitality, you know, gyms, all this sort of thing. They're not things we want to let go of at all. And yet at the end of the day, it's taken its toll on people that have been in those industries, have tried to tighten their belt so much, but have, you know, been forced to give up along the way. I think that uh, my hope is that those very important sectors can you know can be unleashed again and prosper and 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 it's a hope but you know i just hope that uh, particularly with all the fiscal stimulation that's occurred in recent times that the the, the the damage has been minimized you know those people that have committed their lives to those sectors who have not been able to hang on um you know that's really really tough but i hope we haven't lost too many of them and what about the future of brand Melbourne, so to speak? Do you think the damage that's been done is irreversible or do you think we're likely yeah. to see a strong rebound next year? Look, look I am, um, as with so many, uh, someone who is a CBD person. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't live there. I don't even live near the CBD. But, you know, the CBD has been part of my life for a very long time. I've grown to love it. And the reality is that, um, you know, the, the CBD of every major metropolis will undergo, has undergone massive change in relation to its use by the community around it in the future. What I see for brand uh, Melbourne CBD is still, I hope, the country's um, best draw card in terms of sporting stadia and what have you. I mean, that's become a much more competitive space lately and every Australian capital city has something to be really proud of and to boast boast about. But, um, you know, our CBDs right around the country will still be the natural regional centre for special cultural, special sporting events, special events that, you know, just lend themselves to being in one place in the state. I acknowledge that. But at the end of the day, as a, as a workplace, the CBD has undergone what is clearly a permanent change. There will be no rushing back to the old method. I love mucking around with, with young people or people I think are young in their 20s. And a number have said to me, one of the very positive things about the pandemic is that it's actually shortened, they say sometimes by around about 10 to 15 years, what was inevitably going to happen anyway. But the voice of a younger generation saying, don't tell me to get on a train and spend an hour or so going in and out to my place of work when I know that I can do it perfectly well much of the time from a place that I would rather be in. That has, you know, that, that phenomenon has occurred courtesy of the pandemic. I mean, I was staggered, like so many people, at the apparently seamless way in which the world of business changed, pivoted, if you want to use that word, to, um, uh, you know, to remote work so quickly. I was really staggered. I thought it would be much more difficult than it was, but it just happened. And part of that was because of the positive way in which so many of the, you know, the workforce, including me, reacted to that very necessary change. There will be no turning back. And the sad thing, the challenge for our CBDs is that they're largely built on a bedrock of providing workspace. And we're going to have to be much more creative. Um, you know, I take my hat off to Sally Cap, the um, the Lord Mayor, because you know she and her team around her do have a big challenge. But at the end of the day, there's only one CBD in any state, and it will still be the right place to celebrate so much of um, you know what we like to do as humans. And right in the heart of Melbourne CBD, of course, is Macquarie's. 
head office for <laughs> Victoria at 80 Collins Street, one of the best precincts yeah. and one of the best commercial buildings, I think, in the country. But I want to get your view on where do you see or what do you see are the major opportunities for growth um, in Australia over the years ahead? Look, it's a, um, it's a good question. My starting point is that we might not feel lucky at the moment. There are other nations racing ahead. They're, they're way ahead in terms of their vaccination schedule. They've opened their borders or, or possibly never really shut them. And there's, you know, a perfectly understandable feeling around at the moment that things are pretty gloomy for Australia. But my starting point always is we're the most extraordinarily lucky country. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful country to start with. It's replete with all sorts of resources, both um, natural, agricultural, mineral, whatever, that, 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 are, that are just massive assets, if you like, in the balance sheet of the, of the country. And uh, not only will we get through this particular era that we're in at the moment that's causing us to feel a bit glum, but most importantly, we will continue to be sought after as a place to be, whether to live, whether to have a business, whether to be even positioned geographically um, so perfectly for, uh, you know, all that Asia offers. So, you know, we're lucky and let's celebrate that good fortune that we have. And then when one goes into the, um, the area of, well, you know, what's, what's going to work and what's not going to in the, in the, years, to ha- uh, in the years to come, I think, um, you know, firstly, providing we can continue to continue to represent ourselves as, as this wonderful place, relatively clean, great health system, by and large, happy, you know, happy population, um, then, you know, it just strikes me that whatever we want to do, we can do. Yep, we have the good fortune with minerals in the ground, agriculture, et cetera. But on top of that, we do have a first-class university, a first-class education system, which ought to be able to produce, you know, Australians who in a much more virtually connected world can be part of the inevitable change that is such a massive part of, um, of business nowadays. You know, we, we, uh, we, we actually uh, measure what that change economy is worth. We call it tech or whatever you want to call it. But at the end of the day, um, we all know that we're we're not getting our fair share of that global tech sector. There is no reason why we can't. This requires application. And most importantly, <clears throat> there's no shortage of people who want to live in this wonderful country. And we just need to get a few levers right, pull a few levers, such that um, we can round out getting our fair share of that um, you know, tech sector growth. But uh, aside from that, we'll, like the US, continue to have an incredibly strong domestic economy that accounts for so much of what we do, so much employment. And, um, you know, I remain um, incredibly positive. Indeed, putting on one or two other hats, I know that when we open our border, if you thought there was strong demand for immigration into this country in the past, we'll be blown away in the future. And, And these aren't, I mean, I've got a strong view on you know, increasing our proportion of, of immigration that ought to be refugees that have very little by way of material assets. But at the end of the day, just the demand from people that have significant material assets and actually come on day one and provide a very positive impact for this country, um, you know, the future will absolutely dwarf the past. And indeed, it begs the question of what our policies ought to be in relation to that. But um, no, I think the, the, the future of this country is extraordinary. Equally, there are a number of headwinds the country faces in the medium to long term, not least the changing landscape in the Indo-Pacific region, as well as trade disputes with large trading partners. What do you see are the key risks? This is a really tough area, Rob, and and I'd like to start off by saying I'm no professional diplomat. (laughs) You know, I'll leave that to the people that really know what they're talking about. But look, at the end of the day, um, we can hold our head up high and say that we have a voice globally, but we need to use that voice really, really carefully. Um, You know, when we call out other nations because they think they've got something wrong, we have to be absolutely ready for them to call us out in relation to things they think we're not doing so well, everything from climate change to having, you know, the right relationship and opportunities for our First Nations people. And, you know, we can't be too precious about that. But I think the important thing for me 
is this, that we really think through carefully how our, in, our increasing voice globally is projected. Um, I'll mention one thing, for example. You know, I didn't understand why we were so prominent in the call for the Wuhan investigation early last year. I mean, I was aware, like so many others, that it was an obvious thing to ask for. And indeed, it was an obvious thing for most of the global community to ask for. I'm not sure why we were seen as the one nation that was asking for it for the loudest. And I think we might have been a bit more intelligent if we'd done some more back room work globally and then came out as part of a very, very strong coalition asking in the right way for um, you know a, a sensible investigation. Now, incredibly sensitive. I think we all understand the sensitivity about this issue, but I just think that we could have gone about it a little more intelligently and, and, and that sometimes means taking a little longer, doing a bit more legwork, talking to others and what have you. But, um, you know, when we want to find out something, um, ask the tough question, let's try and get as many allies with us as possible rather than to do it by ourselves. Very tough for a, a country of 25 million people to, um, to ask the right questions. I'm not saying it wasn't the right question, but just the way that we go about this. And you know, at the end of the day, we're in a very, very different world to where we were, um, you know, some decades ago. Um, you know, the power of China is just undeniable. It will continue. Um, we just need to play all of this incredibly intelligently. And, you know, to, to, to draw something from the Chinese, do it on a long-term basis. There, there, there can't be any knee-jerk reactions here. We need to think through everything we do, which is under the global microscope, do it intentionally do it well, do it on a long-term basis and do it knowing before we open our mouths what the consequences of what we say are going to be. Before we move on, the environment and commitment to climate change continue to dominate discussion on a global level and they've also dominated discussion in Australia for the past decade at least. As someone who is passionate about climate action, take me through your assessment of how you think the government the federal government's fearing, or for that matter, state governments, but, but particularly the, the federal government? I, I think the thing that we we all need to understand, and sometimes it's hard to understand it here in, in Australia, is that whether we like it or not, well, sorry, I've always been a, what I think is a realist in relation to climate change, not because I'm a scientist, but, but I've had the great privilege to spend a lot of time with people that had committed their lives to that area and I kind of got it a long time ago. That's not the point. The point is that um, I think we need to remind ourselves that the world itself is now investing very hev heavily in an industry that's going to measure our carbon intensity in everything we do. You know, if we think that we're insulated, you know, the arguments of we're just a little country, we don't matter. Um, if we double our carbon emissions, it's not going to make a, a matter as far as the globe is concerned. Other bigger countries, um, you know, particularly developing countries have much greater impact. Look, they're all factual. I'm not disputing that. But what really matters for me is that if we want to play a long-term game of focusing on prosperity for Australia, we have to understand that there's, mass that there's this massive industry emerging around the world focused on counting carbon intensity in everything we do. And none of it over time will be immune. So, for example, to be very specific, whatever we export, whether it's minerals out of the ground that ultimately then go through a process somewhere else that involves um, very significant you know, emissions, and um, you know, there will be a penalty unless we've done something to lower significantly what, that, um, you know, what the, the level of those emissions might be. Our agricultural produce, you know, we need to understand that this massive industry will continue to look carefully at the emissions associated with what we think is wonderful natural produce grown in a green, in a in a very clean place. It won't be enough. We're going to actually have to do the hard work of saying, and it has been done on a basis that is, um, you know, that minimises emissions. Now, it's a nuisance to many people. I acknowledge that it's an extra cost. It's this and that. But Rob, what I would say is again, taking that global view of I think the best continent in the world, which has so much good fortune, isn't it interesting that you know we're one of the three or four best 
places in the world to profit from a world that needs more renewable energy. It's that simple. Just look at the at the data. If you're interested in wind, if you're interested in solar, Australia's just right up the very top of the tree as being perfectly positioned to benefit from that. I mean, good luck. It's just good luck again. And really what we ought to be doing is just focusing on what the opportunity is, how we can actually turn something that looks really challenging to so many of us into a positive. And, you know, my one regret is that I don't think we've been led well enough by a government to see that opportunity. It's all been too much protecting what is literally just going to be unprotectable in decades to come. There's something in this for all of us. There's no doubt about that. As I mentioned in the opening, you've had over 35 years experience in and exposure to one of the nation's most revered institutions in Macquarie Group. Talk to me about your time at Macquarie and, and what do you think makes the business so successful? The way that I would describe it, and of course nowadays, Rob, I'm I'm, I'm no longer in the Chinese wall. I can't actually tell you any, any juicy stuff because I don't know it anymore. <laughs> but to answer your question over, you know, now, what's a frighteningly long period of time for me. And it's kind of interesting because it was really the only place I knew for most of my career. I thought everything else was like that and learnt along the way that it wasn't. But I think, um, you know, we'll all have a different perspectives as old Macquarie people, but my perspective is this, that when it started life as a very, very small, we didn't even call them investment banks, they were merchant banks. We knew we were small. We knew we were insignificant. You know, even back in the in the 80s, we were pitching against the subsidiaries of well-established merchant banks based in London or in the US. And, and we really had to put our best foot forward. And we had to try like there was no tomorrow. We had to seriously be innovative, do things that had either failed before or hadn't been invented before. And that was the only culture I knew. Interestingly, and it's not relevant for today, but I was you know, fortunate enough to to helm a boat that um, you know held the world sailing speed record for many many years, and the culture was the same. I mean, we were from the wrong end of the the planet, <laughs> and we had resources that were a fraction of what other teams had around the world. And and um, I'm not saying I injected it with Macquarie culture, not at all. It grew it itself, but it was the same culture. We've just got to try harder. We know that we're up against it. We know that we don't have certain things that our competitors have but let's give it a go it was that simple and i think the important thing for for me over now you know decades is that Mac the macquarie leadership team if you like has tried very very hard to avoid being complacent it now has market positions that ordinarily would provide or room for complacency if i can put it that way and i think one of the good things is and there's very much there's a lot of longevity in Macquarie. A lot of people that perhaps can't quite think back as far as me or Bill Moss, who I know has been on your program before, but still can think back a long way and know that, that um, the bedrock of innovation, of trying harder, doing things that haven't been done before, um, fail quickly, learn quickly, get on and find something that does work is still there. And most importantly, no room for complacency. And, you know, for me, talk about lucky, you know, as I said, it was the only employer I really knew for most of my life. And to have that inculcated into you as just being non-negotiable, there's no other way to operate, was just, um, you know, sheer luck for me. And I'm interested to know, what were some of the things that you worked on or some of the divisions that you worked within when you were working on a full-time basis there? Well, you know, Rob, for me, I was simply in the M&A division. So, you know, I did nothing broader than that. And, and even, you know, when I got to the position I did in, in Melbourne, it was still largely, um, you know, a corporate finance. I mean, there was fundraising as well as M&A and what have you. The, the other divisions, you know, honestly, were very much uh, led by, by people in Sydney. And, um, uh, you know, in, in many respects, our job in, in the M&A and um, uh, fundraising side of the business, investment banking side of the business, if you like, was to fly the flag as prominently as we could around Melbourne. But um, look, it's been an extraordinary journey. And for, for so many of us, and we catch up every now and then, you know, we just know that we were so lucky to, to happen to land in that place at a time when we had no idea where it was going.
You mentioned M&A earlier. There's been an enormous amount of M&A activity this year with both consolidation mm. and the takeover of public companies by private institutions. As an interested bystander or observer, what do you think's driving a lot of those trends? Yeah, it's it's a good question. And, you know, nowadays that I'm no full-time M&A practitioner, I'll, I'll give you a view <laughs> from a bit outside the epicentre. Look, clearly, um, the fact that interest rates are just simply so low and whilst there's always conflicting views, they're not expected to rise really significantly in the short term, short to medium term. You know, that's something. I think, secondly, let's face it, there was a big shock to the system in the first quarter and second quarter of last year. We didn't know how the world was going to um, come out of it. We now know an awful lot more. And those... Australian companies, and bearing in mind, going back to what we were first talking about, um, much of the corporate sector has done very well, especially considering we're going through a, a pandemic of, um, you know, that we haven't seen in a century. And based on that triangle, if you like, of low interest rates, a world that we can look forward and navigate with um, more confidence than we could a while ago, pretty strong balance sheets. I am not surprised that we're seeing the activity that we're seeing. And of course, the activity just isn't listed to listed. There's a continuing theme that's been around for a long time now about where much more of the funding is coming from non-listed sources, private equity, big super funds, whatever. And I don't see that um, trend falling away either. So um, no, there's a there's a real boom underway at the moment. It'll be interesting to see whether it's sustained or like every other M&A boom that we've seen, it comes to an end at some point. But uh, no, at the moment, it's, um, it's, it's really strong. Before we move on, in terms of the investment banking industry itself, there's still all the traditional players that are still very active, but we've also seen the rise of some smaller boutiques, mm. Jardin from over in New Zealand and Baron Joey in New South Wales. Is the market big enough for all of these players, do you think? And and I suppose the second part of that is what makes Australia an attractive market for investment banking companies? Inside the investment banking world, we've said for as long as I've been in it that we've been overbanked full stop, you know, compared to um, to other parts of the world. And uh, look, I'm not sure why, but at the end of the day, there's been a, a very strong tradition for a long time of what we call, you know, boutique investment banks. Look, I think what is important is to take away the nameplate sometimes and remember that it is a business that's incredibly reliant on hardworking and talented individuals doing what they do very, very well. And, you know, I guess I could imagine a world here, an investment banking world here where that group of individuals just happen to be a bit more like Wall Street in a small number of massive firms. But it's not the way it's evolved. And in some respects, it's 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 evolved in the way it has here because we've had a number of people who have said, no, I can actually provide a service or I can do what I want to do better from a smaller boutique platform than as part of a really large firm. Look, in many respects, I kind of don't care. What's the important thing is from a client perspective is that when a really important transaction, you know, which the board will want to be assured is absolutely under control because when something goes wrong in a high profile M&A transaction, it's not pleasant for anybody. They want to be assured that they've got, you know, the right arms and legs, the right experience, the right team, not just investment bankers, but the lawyers and and others who are involved. And, um, you know, it starts, as I said before, with individuals. The nameplates are really handy as well saying, you know, we've got strong brands behind and and what have you. But look, that's the world we're in. At the end of the day, it's just constantly evolving. And uh, I was just interrupted my own train of thought then because as I think over 30 years, there's just been constant evolution. And, um, you know, boutiques have been gobbled up then by, by, by larger players. And then just like cauliflower, you cut off the head and then another one just keeps going. But I go back to the individual's. And um, put it this way, the worst thing for a big player is not to have the right talent pool. Let's now explore your insights and your role as a board member of the National Australia Bank. Take me through your assessment of the banking sector in general with with reference to COVID and and the impacts of COVID. The banking sector, and I'm going to define it in 2021 terms, as a sector that is primarily interested in, in lending in borrowing to finance that lending, 
to provide financial services. Less involved now in the management of funds. That's the, the fact of the situation. And we've all seen that journey over the last decade or two of how the big banks became uh, you know, very interested in funds management, but one by one have let that go. The banking sector itself is incredibly important to Australia, and and I'll come to the the, uh, the Royal Commission in just a moment. But uh, you know we shouldn't forget has served this country so well through various economic crises. When, and again, some of us can't understand this, but in other countries their banking system didn't. It it, it was pushed to the point of um, of failure, and and frankly was in a much worse position than our banking sector's ever been. So. We ought to be grateful for that. It's worked well. But as we saw in the Royal Commission, I think an accumulation of of, of, of many years of not focusing enough on, on customer needs, to be honest, just meant that there was a lot not to be proud of. You know, my own view for what it's worth is that, you know, the banking sector has done a good job, a really good job, actually, of acknowledging all that's come out of the, the, the Royal Commission. And in many respects, the task is an immense one to make up for years of um, of not doing the right thing, of behaviours that were inexcusable, et cetera, et cetera. And the accumulated work exacerbated, if you like, by an enormous amount of additional regulation and regulators that are uh, absolutely fired up to, to, to hold people to account nowadays. It just means that it's a very, very massive task to clear the the scorecard, if you like, of the black marks. But, you know, for my part, and yes, I have recently joined or a year or so ago, the board of, of, of NAB, you know, my motivation is simply that, you know, Australia needs big organisations, small organisations, ones that have that are new entrants, ones with new ideas, all combining together to create a very competitive playing field so that consumers benefit. If I think about the big banks, they have to continue to commit enormous resources to fixing up the sins of the past. There's no doubt about that. But the big challenge at the same time is to acknowledge that's not enough. That is not enough. Uh, This sector is, just like any other sector, is dynamic. Consumer expectations are increasing. The demand for new services, new new ways of doing things continues to grow. And the challenge for a big bank nowadays is not only to, to fix up those sins of the past, as I said, but to make sure that they're as competitive as they possibly can be, particularly relative to new players who don't who don't have the the legacies of the past that that the big banks are dealing with. I think it's a great challenge, and I'm honestly enjoying every minute that um, that I'm allowed to have with NAB. And you know, the important thing is that we end up with a sector that we can be truly proud of. It's in a much better position than it was, and um, you know, I think the consumers are the benefit. It would seem that the banking industry in Australia is undergoing significant disruption. Disruption, firstly, from the rise of buy now, pay later services, mm. and then also more <laughs> recently with the emergence of nano banks. And I think there was one launched just yesterday or earlier this week by a couple of former banking executives. Yep, that's right. How would you evaluate the threat of both of those for the banking industry in general? You know, it is what it is. It's there and it's a massive sector. And of course, there's no surprise that um, either former employees or people from the outside or indeed big tech out of the US, whoever is going to say, how can we offer something that's better than being offered now and get our slice of an above average return? So, you know, no surprise about that. What I would say, Rob, though, is the the important task for the big banks is to make sure that, uh, you know, we shouldn't forget that what do they have that gives them a competitive edge? Uh, well, firstly, they have large balance sheets. They have access to funding. They have better knowledge, I would argue, of what the consumer wants than anyone else, simply because they've been banking those consumers for so long. They have um, established workforces. You know, they've got all these attributes that are very, very significant, along with one big negative. Namely, we're still cleaning up what we allowed to go wrong over um, you know a decade or two, so we acknowledge that. But I think the important thing is to have an attitude of we can be super competitive. We can be part of this race to impress the consumer. You know, we might have a negative, but we've got a whole bunch of positives as well. And the important thing I think, from a really senior management perspective, is to say, look, how do we allocate our resources so that we can hold our head up high and say we are transforming into a bank that we can truly be proud of, but at the same time, have an appropriate allocation of resources to make sure that, um, uh, you know, we get our fair share of the new product offerings that may every now and then involve 
an acquisition, but but hopefully it can be internally generated as well. So look, I think it's an exciting time, and I can absolutely see a big light at the end of the tunnel for the for the big banks. But there's a lot more work to be done. Once the economy does open up, either at the end of this year or the beginning of next year, how do you anticipate the appetite from big banks will be like in terms of business lending? And then what do you think the demand will be like from either existing businesses or people looking to start businesses? I don't ascribe too much significance to the opening up of the economy, because bearing in mind what we're talking about is a handful of sectors that have been absolutely crushed, no doubt about that. But, you know, really, when you look at our overall GDP numbers, for example, I mean, it's truly remarkable. If you'd said to me two years ago, we're going to go into a once in a hundred year or or at least an epidemic that we haven't had for a, for a century, closed borders, people shut in their homes, you know, et cetera, I, I would have said, I can't see anything other than a pretty permanent recession. That didn't happen. And so, you know, really business lending, for example, has continued to occur. I mean, I don't have to talk about the the housing market. Uh, Again, it's one of the beneficiaries of that $20 billion, $40 billion issue I talked about at the very beginning. We're spending money on our homes. So I don't see an opening up of the borders suddenly just meaning that we turn the switch on and banking starts again in, in the business sector. It will, um, you know, continue to evolve. But there's no doubt that some sectors will be in a much better position to say to their bankers, "Look, the window's now open. We're going to crawl through it, and this is what we would like to do." We've been hamstrung for for 18 months or so, and what I know is, courtesy of the strength of the banking system, that they will have bankers at the end of the phone or the Zoom or whatever they're doing, saying, "Please talk to you to to us about, you know, what your." proposing to do. The good thing is that I don't think there'll be, these conversations won't happen with national financial stress hanging around, which is a a wonderful thing. And, um, you know, very different to major disasters we've seen over the last, um, the last century. So, you know, to answer your question, you know, I think that we just, I hope, come out of this in a very measured way. The restrictions are lowered, more opportunities for businesses that have been, you know, shut in over the last year or two. And, you know, that's all very positive. Changing tack, you're on the board of one of the country's most successful institutions in Rio Tinto. Take me through what you think makes this business so successful as it has been for, for so many generations and decades now. Well, it's a very long-term business and, um, you know, much of what Rio Tinto and the other major miners are participating in at the moment is the result of decisions made a very long time ago. You know, but at the end of the day, that means, of course, that the industry has to make decisions now trying to predict what humanity is going to require in terms of basic materials decades down the path. So there's no surprise that as you know, humanity continues to develop a much greater interest in materials that assist the storage of energy, that you know, that's going to be one area where we just know there will be um, you know, more required. By the same token, we know we're producing things today. Coal is an obvious one where, whether you like it or not, the trend must be that we use less coal in the future. But the complication, of course, is that we're looking over timeframes that are very long and incredibly difficult to predict. And you make decisions and commit very, you know, vast amounts of capital. And it's very hard to turn them around if you think two or three years later, oops, we made the wrong decision. The other thing I will say, and and, and 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 you know, I have to say it, I'm not I can't be a spokesman for Rio Tinto, but at the end of the day, issues of environment, sustainability, governance, ESG, if we thought they were just talking points over the last 10 or 20 years, they are not talking points anymore. They are absolutely pivotal to the future success or otherwise of a business. Uh, You know, Rio Tinto did something really terrible last year. No ifs, buts or maybes. We should never, ever have blown up those Jucan caves. And the, the company has fundamentally changed in relation to its attitude, not just in relation to heritage, but understanding that to be a responsible part of the global community. I mean, we're, you know, Rio Tinto is very proud of what it produces. It got out of coal a, a long, you know, a while ago. Um, got that right. And the materials that it produces today, you know, iron ore into steel, aluminium, copper, etc., are of fundamental importance to the prosperity of this species going forward. No issue about that. And indeed, much of it is actually being invested in things that um, will assist the the reduction of emissions. So that's all good. 
but the way we go about it, whether respecting our First Nations peoples, whether treading as lightly as we can on the surface of this precious planet, whether rehabilitating to a standard that we've that the industry has never done before, because that's now expected, being the right neighbour in a remote community, doing our bit to, in fact, make sure that this community, you know, once we leave, because the mine shuts down over several decades, but we leave the people that stay there and have been there for a long time, feeling not, not that, that they just condoned what occurred, but actually feel positive that it was a good experience, even though a certain mineral has been extracted and, and shipped to another part of the world. Their land was actually, you know, these are things that um, are not just, as I said before, talking points, they're real. And, you know, to the credit of various shareholding groups, organisations like ours are held to account to a very high standard. And I have no problem with that. It's the world we're in, you know, we need to continue to be ahead of this wave to understand what the community thinks. And and the harder we work at doing that, the better positioned these companies will be. You know, Dukan Caves was the worst thing in management as far as I was concerned. And we have to acknowledge how bad it was, but at the same time, you know, use it as a lightning rod to affect real change. The federal government has been actively pursuing new trade agreements and markets for Australian businesses to be able to move into. What do you see are the key growth opportunities for mining businesses in the future? I think, as I said, you know, you need to keep several decades ahead of what humanity requires. And, um, you know, the circular economy is also part of that. The actual minerals that um, are recycled are, are, are part of that circular economy might be the same that, that we're accustomed to today, but obviously different ways of producing it, particularly, you know, understanding that there's a, an enormous aspiration amongst many around the globe that the circular economy ought to become a larger part of the way in which we, um, you know, get our natural food stock in, in, in terms of minerals again. But I go back to what I did say at the end of the day, it's a matter of projecting forward and saying, what are we going to need? And most importantly, what are we not going to need? Because we won't tolerate the extraction or refinement of um, of certain minerals, and and again, it's a matter of being really close to um, to technology, being really close to the scientific world, being guided by it. And when it says, you know, this particular commodity is going to go out of fashion because it has these serious problems associated with it or byproducts or whatever, not putting one's head in the sand and say, oh, that can't be right, let's just ignore it, but actually grasping that nettle and saying that's real. We're in an increasingly discerning global community. It's going to vote with its feet, with its wallets, shareholders at, at AGMs, and just being attuned to what being a responsible member of the extractive industries is all about in the future. It will be very different to what's, you know, what life's been like in the past. I thought we'd now move into a couple of other key sectors you're involved in, beginning with the university sector, given your role mm. as Chancellor of Monash University. Talk to me about the impact that low migration and limited foreign students have had over the past yeah. 18 months. Rob, it's been a really interesting journey for Australia's um, tertiary sector now for several decades. I mean, I've only been Chancellor for a few years at Monash, but when you look back over time, there was a, a big push you know, probably three decades ago, as government funding of universities just started to decline and the call went out, well, for goodness sake, you need to spread your income sources. You know, you need to make sure that, um, and it was no surprise that Australian universities started to take more seriously the prospect of bringing in offshore students to assist with that funding. And as it turns out, our university sector was not bad at it. And over you know, a long period of time, we overtook countries, which a long time ago, you would have thought was never achievable, you know, so we overtook other countries that were very interested in offshore education. And I talk about countries like, you know, France and Germany and Canada. And then remarkably, we got up into the number two position in the world in 2019, when we overtook the UK, there was only the US ahead of us. And um, it was it's not really talked about much, but it was a remarkable achievement because all we had to sell was our offering of a first-class tertiary education to the world. And the fact was the university system here did a pretty damn good job of doing that. Then, of course, a couple of things happened. Firstly, the realisation that so many of our students actually came from China and the tertiary sector was, you know, accused of 
not spreading its um, its focus around enough to other places. But I've got to say, from inside the sector, um, I don't see any shortage of endeavour. In fact, I haven't seen it for years of of trying to spread the risk around to to other countries. But there's no doubt that you know we ended up in a position where, interestingly, just as with so many other things that we export, China was our major consumer by a significant margin. And then, of course, as we've discussed, our borders were closed and it's just become really, really difficult. Now, what's important is that many of our competitors, if I can put it that way, even through the worst of the pandemic, and even as they sustained much, much higher caseloads of COVID and much, much higher death rates, tragically, they kept their borders open to offshore students. And so we slipped down that totem pole very, very quickly. Uh, you know, countries like Canada and the UK actually took the opportunity as we closed our borders to, to be honest, as a competitive person, to take our students, our future students away. And so we have a big job as our borders start to open again to get back into the position that we had. I think it's a wonderful thing that we have overseas students. It's hard work. You know, we need to work better and better and better at making sure that the experience for them, the experience for our Australian students is as good as it can be. And it's sometimes not easy to integrate, obviously different cultures and what have you. But at the same time, our big universities in particular rely enormously or have relied enormously on that offshore income to sustain their very large uh, research and development budgets as well. You know, that's a uh, you, you know, we get certain funding grants from the Australian government, increasingly corporates and what have you, but it's never enough. We need to use the university's resources as a whole to sustain that very important research. And a lot of that comes from offshore students. So big challenge for the sector. The really, really good thing is that I do not see the sector having lost the ability to compete internationally. But we do need to get out of the blocks as quickly as we can. And, um, you know, it's going to be a big challenge for the sector. But, um, yep, a lot of work to be done there. As I mentioned in the opening, you're heavily involved in the disability accommodation sector via summer housing. And I've spoken, I'm mm. sure you've spoken to Tom Ray in the Gold Coast, who's also very passionate about mm. this. Take me through the business and some of the work that it's been involved in. Well, obviously, the big thing over the last 10 years has been the establishment of the NDIA, brought a real focus and a lot of a lot of finance into the sector of looking after, of assisting people with a disability. Now, much of that is focused on their daily needs, making sure they have the right equipment, the right activities, the, the right support, et cetera, et cetera. But when the NDIA, NDIA was, was first established, there was this um, small sliver of payment, if you like, that was focused on their accommodation needs. And um, this is where an organisation like Summer Housing um, came into being. It, was it really was established and conceived, in fact, by a, a wonderful person called Di Winkler, who's had a great passion for, um, for the disability sector. And um, you know, she knew that there was a need to simply provide much more bricks and mortar, and, and importantly, constructed in the right way. People with disabilities need different things. They sometimes need lower bench tops in kitchens to do food preparation more efficiently. They need entrances to places that are different. They need ramps. They need elevated areas that prevent, when you go out into a balcony, elevated areas that prevent the water coming in because that makes it harder for a wheelchair to get out. All these little things. And at the end of the day, what's been really pleasing, and, and we've been a bit lucky because, again, we're in, we've been in this low, relatively low interest rate environment. And what Summer Housing has done is use this assurance of a funding stream from the federal government uh, dedicated towards accommodation to then ratchet up. And the ratchet up has been quite breathtaking because what we've done, we are a non-for-profit, no issue about that, but we've used uh, for-profit financiers as well as some impact funds to raise a very substantial amount. I'm talking about hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. And we now have hundreds of units that have been basically established in the last few years, and there's a whole lot more still to come. And the concept is a very simple one, namely that we look for, not exclusively, but we've often looked for a, a, a group of, of units that are fairly sizable, let's say 100 units all in one block, 
and we might take 11 of them. It's an important number because 10 are for our are for our people with disabilities and one is for a carer, someone who's just on call all the time to assist with whatever with whatever occurs. And then we don't all put them on the ground floor. No, we sprinkle them higgledy-piggledy right throughout the development. They They want to be part of society as a whole. They don't want to be in the disability enclave in the on the ground floor and as much as possible we then ensure that when the project is underway when the the building is actually being constructed in a really efficient way we put in those things that make life a joy for a person with a disability as opposed to try and change it later on which basically is an incredibly expensive exercise so you know i have to say that only after i think four 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 short years or whatever it's been breathtaking the growth of summer housing it is the big one in the sector but we try and work collaboratively collaboratively with other players in the sector because it's not a matter of you know winner takes all the only objective is to increase the size of the unit or housing stock for people with a disability. We don't care if we don't own it. If, if someone else does, that's that's fantastic. And um, it's been, you know, quite a remarkable ride. Our job really is to, a big part of our job is just to show how good this has been and how it unleashes potential in people with a disability. When they've got a place that they can honestly call home and they feel very settled, then they can think about, well, how can I myself give back to the community? How can I hold a productive job? You know, what is the right employment for me? How can I actually do my bit? Because that's what everyone wants to do. And, um, you know, it's a very early stage yet in this journey, but it's um, so far it's been really good. Now, you've been very generous with your time. So just one final question to finish. Reflecting on your career, what are the key lessons or key pieces of advice that you'd share? Rob, I think, you know, for all of us, it's a matter of knowing who we are rather than just assuming that we're a machine and we're here to impress others. I was sort of lucky because I had a, a lot of good people in my life, you know, I mean, they weren't really mentors, but they were people that I was keen to learn from. And I was a bit surprised actually about what I learned about myself at a young age. I had the courage to acknowledge early on in my life that I was never going to be a true champion just in one sector. That was open to me. I mean, I could have just dedicated my whole life to Macquarie and done as well as I could have. But in some respects, that wasn't me. I was greedy. I actually wanted to take in a whole lot of other life experiences. And I just didn't want to wait. I didn't want to wait until I was old like I am now. And I was incredibly lucky because Macquarie accommodated that. And progressively, I just went more and more part-time. And I know that not everyone's journey is as simple as that. But it does start by having an honest conversation with yourself. What really works for us? Don't try and impress the rest of the world. You know, work out what our values are, what's really going to motivate us, and then try and navigate a path. Sometimes it's very, very hard. For me, it's been easy. And, you know, when I look back, yeah, I've done lots of different things. I'm actually a very average person. I'm always relying on people smarter than me and who have better skills than me in certain areas to actually get the job done, to do the hard work or whatever. But, you know, I've been really lucky because I've had a taste of so much that life has to offer. And, and, and in many respects, I, I value a bunch of important older people who, when I was very young, said there is no reason why that somewhat unconventional pathway that you're thinking about can't work. It may not work all the time. There may be a few potholes that you've, you know, you trip over, et cetera. But by and large, you know, understand who we are, understand who we are, and then um, honestly take it from there. Simon McKean, absolute pleasure having a chat with you this morning. As I said, thanks for being so generous with your time and look forward to seeing what's next. <laughs> thanks. Thanks, Rob.